Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. In a sudden flash, it all comes clear. It's a eureka moment, an epiphany. Hi, I'm Marcus Smith, host of the Constant Wonder podcast. The world offers marvel, meaning, and mystery around every single corner. In nature, art, science, culture, history, we talk everything from bees and beetles to obelisks and asteroids. Experience the thrill of transformative encounter. We'll bring more wonder to your day. Listen to Constant Wonder wherever you get your podcasts. Before we start our episode today, this is just a reminder, History Hack does have a Patreon account and all of your donations are gratefully appreciated. There's lots of perks on there, secret groups on Facebook. Do get involved. We would love to see more of you. Enjoy the episode today. Hello and welcome to another instalment of History Hack. You've got Zach and Alex today. I'm quite smug because I've managed to pinch this one off Charlie. She's actually doing all right because she's off to see Mary Beard. So she's 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 living the best Roman life you can. But I've managed to steal this one off of her. Why am I smug, Alex? You're smug because well, I'm smug as well because I get to see Zach's ever-changing baby face while we discuss some of the raciest things of the week on History Hat, which is going to be hilarious because Zach looks four years old. Uh, we have with us LJ Trafford, who is the author of the Four Emperors series of novels, which are all set during 69 CE, which is the year of the Four Emperors. Uh, she's written two non-fiction uh, books before. One is How to Survive in Ancient Rome, a travel guide for the discerning time traveller visiting the year 95 CE, and the newly released Sex and Sexuality in Ancient Rome. Oh, Zach, I'm a, I'm a mess with your head on this podcast. What, you mean to say that you don't do that normally? Yeah, well, mm, that's true. LJ, welcome. Uh, thank you very much. I'm very excited to be here. Oh, reading this book, you must have had so much fun writing this. It was, yeah. It was, um, it was illuminating and I probably learned not to do my research first thing in the morning because it <laughs> sometimes it was like... It's a bit much. <laughs> it's a bit much. much for... cornflakes. <laughs> yeah, too much for the cornflakes. Yeah. So the very first line of the book starts with uh, saying how you'd be wise to step away from the book now if you're of a delicate sensibility, like Zach, because we are going to be looking into how the ancient Romans talked about sex. Just how racy is this book? Um, well, it's kind of book of two halves, almost like kind of Roman society itself. So it's on the one hand, it's kind of racy and in your face explicit with kind of all the details you would expect from a book called Sex and Sexuality in Ancient Rome, the kind of the orgy-tastic stuff, if I can put it like that. So, you know, I look at the kind of sexual imagery that's been found at Pompeii, the frescoes of couples making love that you find in people's private houses, but you also find in public spaces. We look at the kind of the phallic imagery that is just absolutely everywhere that Rome touches. And we look at some of the, the brutally explicit poetry 
um, courtesy of people like kind of Catullus and Marshall. So on one side, it's quite racy, but the contradiction at the heart of Rome, and what, what makes it, I think, a really interesting subject is that at the same time we've got all this kind of racy stuff, it's actually quite a conservative society and it's very moralistic and it's very judgmental. Um, they're very, very concerned with public morals to the extent that they... Um, they bring in kind of morality laws to try and control people's private behaviour. So the book itself is, yeah, those two halves, kind of racy, but conservative, surprisingly conservative. <laughs> See, I find that staggering straight away because I've been lucky enough to go to Pompeii. Alex, I think you've been as well. And there's um, knobs everywhere. <laughs> exactly. It's it's just a penis fest, right? It is. Um, so that's why Alina never stops talking about it, does she? <laughs> It's like a favourite thing about the, the museum in Naples. So let's let's start talking about specifics, shall we? If you were a Roman woman, what are you looking for in a Roman man? What is it that's kind of appealing? What is it that's going to get the blood pumping? See, this is this is where we immediately hit a problem um, because our kind of sources for ancient Rome are almost exclusively male. And they're of the elite classes. So we see everything through their eyes. So yeah. how we see sex and sexuality in ancient Rome is a, through a very male side and a very elite side. And you have to search quite hard for kind of women's voices. Um, so you find things like juvenile, the satirist claims that women fawn over actors and that they hang out at the theatre like kind of little fangirls and they collect memorabilia and they faint, you know, when their favourite actor comes on stage. Um, but we don't really know because we don't have their voices. So we can kind of speculate that what would be appealing to a Roman woman was a man who was solvent, who could take care of her financially, because in this era, women are very dependent on, may, on men. Um, they are under the guardianship of a man. Even into adulthood, they will be appointed a male guardian. I mean, it could be their father, could be their husband, or it could be another who's supposed to oversee all her financial concerns. So we could kind of, speculate that that's what they would be looking for a kind of comfortable home and money and support but we don't really know and that's that's really troublesome that we have these kind of missing voices especially on kind of the subject of sex and sexuality because women are often at the kind of hard end of kind of things like morality legislation and kind of societal pressure and we just don't know what they thought about it. Can we take anything from the statues? Because, again, walk around Pompeii, you've got some pretty impressive statues of gods. Gods are meant to be the epiphany of what everybody aspires to be. You seek to worship the gods. But again, as you say, this is a male-dominated society. So the people carving those statues, they're men. So does it give us any inkling as to what was kind of considered the ideal form? The, I guess you can take, yeah... It, it kind of goes back to the ancient Greeks. It's that kind of similar kind of very muscle bound, um, nice pert bottom, um, kind of small penis. Um, it always comes up. And that that's about it. I mean, on the other side, women, you get the kind of the ideal form of the women. You can kind of maybe tell from statues. Again, if you think of the statues of Venus, it's a kind of kind of very slender woman with kind of high, smallish breasts and quite bottom and that could be an ideal but um we don't have the words really even the men you think you would think something like love poetry roman love poetry you think it would be reams and reams and reams about what they admire most in their mistress but if you read through all of catullus and his great love of his life lesbia all you ever kind of find out about her is i think she's got black eyes 
long fingers and a small nose. And that's a kind of that's that's the kind of extent of the description. What you get a lot of instead of kind of describing how people look beautiful, you get a lot more about their character. Um, so women, there's a kind of women are meant to be chaste. They're meant to be loyal. They're meant to be at home kind of weaving woolen underpants for their male folk. And men, um, there's a whole series of attributes which come under the kind of banner of virtus of what an ideal man should be. And that's all about kind of clemency, but being warlike and being um, disciplined and not being excessive. So it, it kind of they kind of concentrate more on the character rather than the outside. In a way, that kind of sounds a little bit more romantic, doesn't it? Because you're focusing on the substance of the person rather than the physical attributes. But there, there must have been plenty of people who were just downright shallow. Is there any kind of indication of, you know, if you're an ideal inverted commas Roman woman, what you might look like, or is there this sense that actually it's it's great to not look Italian or Roman and that actually if you're from Britain or if you're from North Africa or, or from Spain or wherever in the Roman Empire, that you know a particular type of individual might look better than others. Yeah, they don't seem to have a kind of a type of somebody should look Italian. I mean, the women, there's lots of kind of dyeing of hair. They dye their hair red using kind of henna and the kind of cruel thing of um, taking, if you wanted blonde hair, you could kind of order in a German slave's hair so that you could have blonde hair as such. And there's kind of, you know, obviously, if you look at women's hairstyles, particularly that goes in and out of fashion. So you could kind of maybe say that was, you know, of that era, um, particularly the late first century where you get the Flavians, you get really, really big hair, like huge towers of curls. And that was very, very fashionable. Um, whether that made them attractive to men, I mean, there's some very rude poetry from the likes of Juvenile Marshall kind of making fun of these hairstyles and making kind of fun of kind of um, you know, their efforts with makeup and saying that they've caked it on and it's too much. Um, so there was definitely there was definitely fashions that came in and out that you could maybe say was tied to that kind of ideal. Men telling women how to do their hair and makeup? Surely not. <laughs> <laughs> oh, but what was that stupid woman with the, it was Charlotte Tilbury with her, uh, the way to a successful marriage is to never let your husband see you without your makeup on. I was like, I'm sorry, I didn't realise it was 1950. <laughs> yeah, Ovid has a whole thing. Um, he does a whole treatise on cosmetics and the kind of first rule of kind of cosmetics club is your husband must never know how much effort you put into it. It must all be behind closed doors and nobody must know. And then you must spend all day getting ready. Only a man would say that. <laughs> that would not be a woman's advice. So I'm really interested by this juxtaposition of penises everywhere uh, and yet they're quite prudish. I mean, how I mean, are we talking Victorian prudish here? Um, I think I think we have a tendency to look at the past and try and find kind of similarities with people in the past and kind of go, oh, they're just like us because they do X, Y and Z. And I think what's kind of interesting, very interesting about ancient Rome is in many spheres, they're really not like us. They're really not like us at all. And I think sex and sexuality is one of those spheres. And it's because we're kind of from very different cultures and they don't come to look at sex with the same cultural baggage that we come with um, from being a Christian country. And from in our very near past, um, sex being something that was shameful, that was kind of hidden away, wasn't talked about. They don't have that kind of same, same baggage. 
And I mean, you can tell that by all the images that are in Pompeii. So, you know, these are not adults only. These are not hidden away. Sex is very much on public display for everybody to see, whether they be men, women or children. This is um, going to come in with the lack of privacy, isn't it? The fact that you would just do it with your slaves coming in and out of the room as well. And then yeah. The concept of alone time and going, I just need to be by myself isn't really, Romans wouldn't get that, would they? No, and I think I think we forget how modern privacy is. Yeah. How much of a new thing it is. But yeah, certainly, um, you know, obviously you've got the public baths at Rome where people would go and be naked amongst strangers and amongst people they knew and not worry about it too much. But yeah, I mean, with sex, they, I think what's interesting is that they're seeing something different from these images that we're not seeing because of our background. So we look at these images and we see basically, we see pornography. We see something that is meant to be arousing and titillating, something that you would do on your own in private or with a partner for kind of mutual pleasure, but certainly not something that would be in a public space. So they're looking at these images and they're seeing something quite different, which I think is kind of really interesting. Um, but having said that, even though sex is out in the public and it's talked about and it's in poetry and graffiti and whatever, and in your homes and in your public spaces, they, there is, it's not a kind of sexual free-for-all. It's, there's no kind of, oh, you can do it with whoever you want, whenever you want, however you want. There's rules attached to sex and nature, Rome, but they're just different to our kind of rules and are based on their culture. And it, so, yeah, it's quite it's quite a judgmental society. It's quite a rigid society. And a lot of these kind of rules around sex are based on your gender, first of all, and then your class. It's a very rigidly class-structured class society, which we probably maybe wouldn't think it was, um, but it is. And most of it is the biggest class distinction is obviously between being freeborn and being born a slave. And that, you know, changes everything for you in ancient Rome, from your kind of life chances to who you can marry, what kind of what public roles you can hold and what is kind of acceptable sexually as well. Well, let's tap into some of that, because in the modern era, we, we kind of like to think of ourselves as, you know, sort of forward thinking around attitudes and ideas towards gender and identity politics. But actually, the Romans were quite forward thinking as well in their behaviour, certainly within their own way, towards, you know, those who maybe don't fall into the stereotypical categories of male and female. Talk us through that. Um, they're quite, I mean, they do have very rigid structures around kind of gender and sex. And the sex you were born with, whether you're male or female, you know, dictates everything. And it's very kind of honed down. This is what a man is. This is what a woman is. And there is lots and lots of literature about what is an ideal woman and what is an ideal man and how they should behave and what they, you know, all that kind of stuff. Um, so it's quite rigid in that way. And kind of anybody who kind of crosses or gets near that line between kind of male and female is very judged um, on the male side. You know, I mean, half of politics is full of just, you know, accusing your opponent of being effeminate for some some strange reason, you know, they walked a bit funny, you know, they, they were wearing something that was a bit, a bit effeminate. And there's, there's lots of that kind of rhetoric that goes on. But what ancient Rome has that we don't have in our society is they have eunuchs, for instance, as a group of people who fall between that kind of male and female kind of um, categories. But they're not, they're kind of considered other. They're a bit outside society. So they're not kind of celebrated as a kind of third sex or anything they're they're considered a bit foreign a bit unseemly I mean they play as, as 
kind of history goes on in Rome, they play more and more and larger parts in the kind of courts and the emperor's court, but they're very much other. Um, but I mean, then Pliny the Elder has quite an interesting, he has a whole chapter on people who've changed sex in his kind of natural histories, which he kind of opens with the line, you know, that women have changed into men is not a myth. And then he goes to list on a whole load of examples of when this has happened, you know, using the archives and various literature. And then he, you know, he claims that he himself witnessed a bride who became a groomer on her wedding night, which, you know, sounds like there's a lot of questions, you know, that come up from that, you know, like, did the wedding happen? What did the, you know, what did the parents of the bride and groom say? Um, but he infuriatingly gives us no more details than that. He just, you know, he, he just states that he saw this and that was proof and that, you know, nothing more, no good anecdote, no story. So there obviously was a kind of thing that medically you get a lot of doctors and people like Galen, they kind of thought that the male was the standard and a woman was an inverted male. So the kind of the vagina was the penis inverted and the ovaries were the testicles. So although saying that you've got these strict, rigid rules about what men and women are, medically they were thinking they were the same thing. Mm. and that you know Pliny the Elder is very open to the possibility that you could change sex and it would just happen so again it's another contradiction that there's no kind of real explanation for but it, you know I think it I think it's quite interesting yeah there are some um, things that certainly I've heard about uh, other colleagues talking about where they they said that there are these theories that if you um, basically acquired more kind of manliness then you could, as a woman, expel your genitals and suddenly your vagina <laughs> would turn into a penis uh, and then you would have become the sort of fully formed man. So yeah. well, what <laughs> These... happens to your boobs? I didn't come up with the theory. Don't, <laughs> don't ask me. The in that theory is that you've still got a pair of tits. You're expecting me to explain it. I, I, I don't have the answers. I'm really sorry. You're the only man in the room, so you are probably going to get bludgeoned in this interview. But I don't understand where the boobs fit in with this concept of the inverted stuff. Um, Maybe so, they're like pectoral muscles, but different. Do they just get away and shrink? I don't know. You'd have to ask, ask medics bro. from that period. <laughs> ask, ask Galen, yeah. yeah. It's all very well and good having the attributes of being chaste and virtuous to bring in the attention of the opposite sex. But let's face it, you are you have got to put that effort in. You, you mentioned that phase of massive towers of hair. Um, how did Romans use standards of beauty to rid in their prospective partners? And does it go all the way down through society? Um, yeah, I mean, as we said, the kind of the hairdressing is a good yeah. hair is a good way to attract attention. And, you know, they always date kind of busts they find by the hairdos of the women. Um, perfume becomes ridiculously expensive and fashionable at one point um, and overpowering sometimes you know Marshall has poems about kind of being overpowered by kind of the smell of cinnamon as somebody walks past him and you know it gets to ridiculous levels where you know Offo the Emperor Offo is said to perfume his feet you know and that's terrible that's going too far and um, as it Caligula perfumed his bathtub and Nero's golden house spurted perfume onto pe on guests when they visited and, you know, Pliny the Elder has the story of, you know, where it just gets too fashionable and people start drinking perfume because they want to make their innards, their insides smell as nice as their outsides. So you know, that's certainly one way people try to attract attention. And I, 
I think Roman male writers are really bad. Uh, you will really struggle. In fact, I can't think of a single example where somebody describes like the fantastic, fabulous gown that Empress whatever wore to the dinner party. Um, they, you know, it's, it's almost as if they're not interested in that kind of thing. So <laughs> you don't get a lot of mention around clothes and things like that. But yes, hair, makeup was a big thing. Um, ass's milk was supposed to be good to pre for um, preventing wrinkles. The Empress Papaya was said to have bathed in acid's milk. Um, so that would have taken quite a few asses lined up. Um, and you get things like um, it's quite fashionable to have kind of pale skin because then that shows that you don't have to work outside in the sun. And one of the things they use to create this pale skin is kind of white lead shavings with um, vinegar, which then forms a paste that you would then put on your face. And obviously, long term, that's not going to be terribly good, good for your face. Um, poppies were used to put red for kind of red on the lips and you get kind of saffron kind of put around the eyes a kind of eyeshadow so they, they had yeah quite a lot of cosmetics and perfume and chiffon and gowns was considered kind of borderline scandalous because it's quite see-through um, and silk was considered you know very luxurious and again you know at the point Pliny the Elder gets very upset that men look as if they're going to start wearing silk as well, which is like a step too far. And, you know, general, anything against an emperor that they're trying to list kind of depravities, one of them will be, you know, he wore silk and he wore, you know, kind of too feminine and too expensive material. So with that perfume thing, if they don't want men to smell, you know, not of body odour, <laughs> does that therefore mean that sort of sweaty, dirty individuals, men are meant to be sort of a bit sweaty and dirty? And and that's you know a, a nice inverted commas thing. Uh, it's it's a yeah it's a it's a kind of thin line. Again, it's this kind of judgmental society that Rome is. We have tread a very thin line of what is acceptable. So it's not acceptable to be unkempt as a Roman male. You must shave every day and be kind of smart. But then you can step over that line and go too far. And the emperor Otho gets very bad press for caring that bit too much about his appearance because he used a, a bread poultice on his chin to soften to soften the skin and and you know he was another one who was said to have perfumed his feet and he's kind of stepped into that caring too much um so yeah so you get this kind of round hair removal it's kind of it's good to remove your hair even if you're a man but not to go too far not to kind of remove absolutely everything so there's this kind of thin line between being kind of kempt and smart and you know stepping over into kind of femininity and the kind of women's Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. World. 
I have visions now that, you know, it, it's not okay to have a beard or to have stubble, but if you've got hair growing out of your ears, that that's great. You, you know, you can plait that and, and turn it into something fancy and, and that's going to be okay. Um, that is not based on any kind of historical knowledge. Right? So I completely <laughs> made that up. That was a joke. Um, obviously for the Romans, there's an end goal, right? Which would be to find someone who you would court with the hope of eventually marrying them. But how, as a Roman, do you go about finding love? How do they go about meeting people to start that process of forming a relationship? I'm guessing class is going to play an element in that. Yeah. Well, marriage, there isn't really kind of what we would call a dating scene. A marriage, if you know, you're meeting someone for the idea of marriage, marriage is something that's arranged between families. You know, and it can be for a political alliance or to meld together kind of financial fortunes or for you know, the lower end kind of businesses melding together. So it, it's a range. So there's no kind of courtship of meeting somebody you fancy and then going out for dinner a few times to some banquets and then you ask them to marry you. So it doesn't kind of work like that. And the, the, when you look at kind of love poetry, the kind of the women that these men are kind of pursuing, quite often they're married women. So they're, they're you know, if you look at Catullus and people like that, and Tibullus as well, and Ovid, their lovers are all married. And what they're describing is how they're managing to court them despite them being married. So there's a lot of, they talk a lot about the kind of impediments to kind of wooing that kind of woman, you know, kind of getting around the doorman who won't let them in and bribing the slaves to get messages to her and things like that. So really a kind of a Roman male, if he's walking around kind of looking at women, Freeborn women are, ki- are meant to be off limits to him and married women certainly are meant to be off limits to him from kind of societal pressure. Um, the poet Ovid has a whole book on um, how to pick up women on the streets of Rome, um, <laughs> essentially, which is very funny. And it's, um, it's a bit of, bit of a political dig at Augustus because he's writing this under the Emperor Augustus who brought in a whole sweeping load of morality legislation. So, you know, Ovid writing this work about how to pick up women and how to sleep with them and how, you know, how to pull basically is a kind of political dig. But um, he has, I mean, he has numerous suggestions for places to meet women because Roman women, what is clear from the kind of poetry and the literature, they're not kind of locked away in their houses. They are out in the world. You know, they are at the circus watching the chariot races. They are at the games. They are at dinner parties and things like that. They are at the theatre, um, all of which, you know, Ovid suggests a good pickup joints. And, you know, he suggests, you know, at the circus Maximus watching the chariot races, you basically sit next to a woman and make yourself a bit of a sex pest. So, you know, you offer a cushion for her and use the chance to feel up her bum, you know. You, oh, you, <laughs> and then, you you know, you pretend to flick something off her chest and have a good feel, you know. I love to, th- I, I hope there's a pamphlet somewhere by a woman about how to uh, avoid a sex pest at a chariot race. Like, that he had a reputation for it and that, like, literally women saw him coming. I would, uh, I would love that to be the case. Yeah, Just I mean, imagine it, can't you? You know, this is where you stick a dagger, girls, if you want him to nap <laughs> yeah. off, you know, and it's it's very effective. And if that doesn't work, then a foot in the same area will do the trick just as well. Yeah, here's a similar one at the games, which is kind of a bit of mansplaining. You're meant to kind of stand next to the woman and then explain to her what's going on and what the order of events is. And if you don't know, he's, you know, he suggests you just make it up, you know, so it's, but I mean, you know, it's, it's satire, it's meant to be funny, but... You kind of think at the, at the bottom of all this, there is a kind of kernel of truth that they're kind of exaggerating for kind of comic effect. And I think you could 
well imagine if you're a Roman woman you might be harassed by someone at you know the chariot races or you know that kind of drunk bloke at a banquet who won't leave you alone so you know you there probably was some kind of kernel of truth there so obviously this is all about personal preferences like Romans are no different to us I mean Zach might be utter filth uh, and the next person on history hack isn't but uh do we have any sort of surviving evidence of what Rome as any individual Roman sort of constituted as great sex? Um, again, Ovid writes a whole piece on kind of good sex and it, it's meant to be mutually pleasurable, which I think you wouldn't really think of necessarily of Rome because it's a very male dominated society. It's, it's a, it is a patriarchy. So you wouldn't necessarily think it was about mutual pressure, but that does get into the kind of text and the medical text kind of recommend that women should enjoy sex for the, you know, for the good of their health. And they quite often, they almost write a prescription. And there was a case of a widow who'd got various ailments and wasn't doing very well. And and one of the doctors suggested, well, you know, she needs to get remarried and have lots of sex. And then that's going to cure her. So you get kind of sex kind of prescribed as something that is good, good for your health. Um, on the other hand, if you have too much sex, if you're too excessive about it, that's going to deplete you and make you ill. Um, so there's a border. Again, there's a line that you can't cross that you must walk carefully along of having enough sex to keep healthy, but not too much sex to make yourself ill. See, I'm not imagining that that's going to get prescribed on the NHS anytime <laughs> soon, you know. Um, what about taboo things? Is there anything that's kind of inverted commas off limits? Yeah, many, many things. Um, it's... Yeah, again, because it's a male-dominated society, it's all about a good, decent Roman male, elite Roman male is always the penetrator and not the penetrated, because that's what Romans are. They're doers. They're they're active. They're not passive. And that runs through kind of society. So kind of being the passive partner in anal sex is a big no-no for an elite Roman male. That's taboo. Um, Fellating another male is a big, big no-no because the mouth is considered sacred, so to pollute the mouth or be kind of penetrated in your mouth is, you know, dreadful. And then below that, the absolute worst thing you could do was perform oral sex on a woman because then she's penetrating you, your mouth with her genitals. And that's, you know, that's just terribly taboo and off limits as well. So you get, I mean, if you think about the Pompeii graffiti, there's a lot of people who are kind of immortalised as kind of cocksuckers. And, you know, that's not a compliment. That's just kind of a dreadful, dreadful slur on them forever immortalised because, you know, because a volcano blew up. I love it. It's brilliant. I'm just trying to think of all these poor, poor Roman women that never knew the joy of oils. In a sudden flash, it all comes clear. It's a eureka moment, an epiphany. Hi, I'm Marcus Smith, host of the Constant Wonder podcast. The world offers marvel, meaning, and mystery around every single corner. In nature, art, science, culture, history, we talk everything from bees and beetles to obelisks and asteroids. Experience the thrill of transformative encounter. We'll bring more wonder to your day. Listen to Constant Wonder wherever you get your podcasts. As if, like, anybody actually wants the bedroom door is shut. Do you actually listen to anything? People just do what they want in the end, don't they? Yeah, I mean, I think, I think this is a thing. I mean, Rome at its height was, you know, it was a million people. The idea that a million people, you know, all think one thing about yeah. anything, let alone sex and sexuality, is kind of dubious. So, you know, you can say, oh, this is what they thought, but you know, whether people kept to it, probably, you know, probably not. And there's enough evidence to suggest that they didn't, you know, that, 
you know, these were the taboos, but, you know, pl- plenty of people were committing them. You know? I mean, if you believe Suetonius, the kind of imperial biographer, every single Roman emperor, you know, was, you know, involved in a, a homosexual relationship or some sort. Complete degenerate. Um, yeah. We have, when things go wrong, so we're talking about rejection, lack of sex, when sex ends badly, uh, what do we do now? We have social media vomit, don't we, for that? We just go and complain all over there. Uh, it sounds like the Romans aren't that different, except they just wrote it on walls. Yeah, so I mean, it's quite it's quite a good one from Pompeii, which is um, some poor guy here who, who states, "Weep, you girls! My penis has given you up. Now it penetrates men's behinds. Goodbye, wondrous femininity." So you kind of think somebody there broke his heart, you know? Yeah. And you get kind of graffiti of you know the, the soldier who you know knew so many women, but not enough for such a stallion, you know. So people kind of seemingly complained on the walls. Again, this is all immortalized by you know a singular event. Um, but you know a lot of Roman love poetry is it's not really about love it's about suffering and complaining and moaning and whining um, about your lady love who's treated you very badly and isn't she awful and you're so heartbroken oh woe is me type thing so you've got poetry as a kind of outlet on the more bawdy side kind of Marshall's got all manner of complaints about various you know sexual encounters of his um, and things you wouldn't really expect. He writes a whole poem about um, his uh, lover's vagina, which is too noisy and, and upsets him, uh, or it's too roomy. And he very, very unkindly compares it to a series of kind of roomy um, items, including a British pauper's trousers, which is you know, very, very mean. So there's um, poetry, but I mean, you could also get revenge. You could turn to magic to get revenge. Um, maybe a curse tablet, a straightforward curse tablet on whoever's broken your heart. Or you could do a spell to get them back again. Um, and these, I mean, spells get quite dark. There's, some, there's a kind of nasty undercurrent of kind of some of the spells that you find that, um, of kind of possessiveness of wanting someone to come back to them and uh, them obeying their every command. So it, sometimes it, it reads quite nasty, but certainly that that might make you feel better, I guess. <laughs> a kind of a, a good old curse or a good old spell against them. So you've touched on this a little bit, adultery. Nobody's meant to do it because it, you know, you said earlier that you, you shouldn't be, once you're in a, a marriage, particularly for Roman women, surprise, surprise, it's not acceptable for the woman to be um, having an affair. But what about the men as well? You know, how, how does all of this come together? Do we have this kind of double standard thing that we've become used to through subsequent history where the men are all at it, but as soon as a woman's got uh, uh uh having an affair then you know that that's that's really scandalous or is it more kind of even no 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 the women get the women get the raw deal as ever in this um the adultery laws are very harsh on women unfairly so so um a, for a woman adultery is classes anything with sex with anyone other than a husband full stop whereas with a man it's just sex with a freeborn woman or a married woman that's not his wife. So slaves, uh, freed slaves, prostitutes are all on limits for him. And that doesn't class as adultery. And women who get convicted of adultery, they lose, I think it's half their dowry and a third of their property. And they can't, they lose their right to inherit as well. And they can get exiled and they're banned from wearing the kind of stola, which is the, the gown of the Roman matron. And they can't travel in litters about the place so effectively their kind of citizenship their status is reduced and their husband is forced to um, forced to divorce them um, otherwise he gets into trouble as well and they put in further kind of laws to stop people remarrying 
after they've been forced to adult, um, forced to divorce because of adultery. So it's, yeah, it's really hardcore bad for the women in this. Um, and, but you get, they have to kind of, the first load of these kind of laws come in under uh, the Emperor Augustus, but the Emperor Tiberius, he has to tighten up the law and, um, he, and close some of the loopholes because apparently some women have been registering as prostitutes so they could sleep with whoever they wanted and get round these adultery laws. Um, you know, I doubt it was many women, but it was enough. I mean, there's one named in the sources. It was enough kind of elite women for them to think it worthwhile closing that loophole and saying, no, you can't do that. Um, so, yeah, I mean, they are very concerned about adultery and they're very concerned with women's chastity. And that runs right through kind of Roman society and kind of Roman history. And these, these adultery laws, they get harsher and harsher as kind of time goes on. Um, so when you get to sort of the um, second century, end of the first, second century, you get, you now can be prosecuted for letting anybody use your home for an adulterous liaison. You can get prosecuted under adultery laws for that. And then later on, kind of when you get to Christian era, you know, you can get executed. Women get executed for committing adultery. It gets far, far harsher. So one of the things that you've mentioned is, you know, this distinction between who you can or can't have an extramarital relationship with um, if, if you're a, a married man. So slaves, prostitutes, did you say freeborn women as well? Uh, were... free, freed slaves, are, freed slaves. On, okay. are allowed. Yeah, freeborn women. Freeborn women and freeborn men are protected under something called stuprum, which kind of roughly translates as a shameful act. And there's, a lot, there's legislation around that to protect people from being a victim of this shameful act. And the laws are quite sketchy, so we can't work out quite what it what the they were protected from. But it seems to be things like kind of sexual assault. Um, it seems to be things like you know kind of messing around with a vestal virgin is considered a shameful act. But it's quite open ended. Um, but yeah, the freeborn have this protection that slaves and freed slaves don't have, and that's why they're on their you know allowable kind of lovers and partners for kind of Roman men. So who ends up being classed as? undesirable inverted commas then and, and again presumably status has a role to play in this does it um and you know alex for example is gonna hate this the whole thing in gladiator you know the empress doesn't get it on with russell crowe um that would have been a, a big no-no in actual roman society wouldn't it it would be would have been an absolutely huge no-no because gladiators <laughs> have come on this class of people called infame and they're kind of right at the bottom of Roman society. So they're kind of beneath even slaves. And um, they, 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 have, they don't have all the rights of kind of Roman citizens. So you can beat an infame in the, in the street and they can be subject to corporal punishment like a slave can because they're not protected by kind of laws. And you can't marry them. Nobody can marry any member of the infame, um, whether they be senator or ex-slave or whatever. They can't marry marry them and the kind of people who class as infame you can either become infame by your behavior so if you've been involved in a particularly shameful act um some stuprum you might find yourself classed as infame for a short time um women who get prosecuted under adultery laws sometimes fall into this camp as well because their citizenship has been reduced by their kind of conviction but mainly you can get there by your profession and the main professions that are classed as infame are gladiators actors and prostitutes and all those three classes are kind of off bounds for marriage they're okay for kind of um affairs for kind of men having affairs with prostitutes or actresses so long as they don't take it too far again that kind of nothing in excess 
Um, so Mark Antony has an affair with a very well-known actress, but he takes it a bit too far in that he takes her on his official public business and things like that, and involves her in stuff that, you know, he, she shouldn't be involved in. So, again, it's that kind of line of nothing in excess, not being too excessive. What is too far? I mean, to, to us, you know... The, too far would surely mean to be an indication of how intimate you become but is this about kind of how publicly you display your relationship yes it's about that kind of public behavior um of yeah inviting them into your public life beyond where they should be out of their kind of world where they belong yeah that's the kind of line of of you know they're there for a fling for a quick you know whatever but they are not meant to be long-term partners because of the social stigma connected with them and in you know talking about class as well you know senators and that kind of class senatorial class are banned from marrying ex-slaves whereas lower down you can you know the lower classes do marry ex-slaves so your kind of life chances and and who you can marry is determined by whether you're freeborn or not freeborn but I mean you do get emperors who have kind of long-standing relationships with ex-slaves and Emperor Vespasian has a very long-term mistress called Kynus, um, who he treats pretty much as his wife. And he actually doesn't, you know, which you think would be excessive because she does involve herself in public business. But then she's an ex-imperial slave. So she's been involved in that kind of world throughout her whole life. But yeah, he kind of gets away of not being censored for that, which is, I think it's quite interesting, where someone like Nero, who takes up with a freed woman he wants to marry, Acte, um, you know, he wants people to kind of forge papers to prove that she's of royalty so he can marry her. And that's the step too far. She's not a mistress anymore. He wants her to be his wife. Do you think it's also the fact that people just hated Nero? <laughs> yeah, yeah, very probably. So, yeah, what's all right for one person, you yeah. know, it's not all right for Nero. You know? Yeah, we, you're just a dick. So we're going to say no. Deny. <laughs> Deny, yeah. I'm really interested to know, so this wouldn't be history hack if I didn't ask you this question. What did you find during your research that shocked you the most about Romans and their sex lives? Um, I think it's the rule, it's the laws on circumcision, which are really, really harsh, which I'd never really thought about before. That's kind of already. Yeah, so kind of (laughs) going through loads of kind of, um, you know, kind of legal documents. Yeah, circumcision, if you were circumcised or let one of your slaves get circumcised you end up getting exiled and the doctor who does who performs the operation he gets executed which is really really harsh and it's kind of treated akin to kind of castration there's lots of laws around castration and trying to kind of stamp it out and try and stamp out kind of eunuchs as a thing which clearly doesn't work because is there any anti-semitic connotation to the the strictness of that law there probably is because the um jews were allowed to be circumcised they right. weren't um certainly yeah in the kind of first century they weren't kind of subject to the cir- circumcision laws they were exempt so they were allowed to be circumcised mm. but yeah I mean there's you know there's a trait of anti-semitism in Roman society certainly but I mean they were very much you know the, one of the um, Dr Sirinus he writes a whole treatise on you know kind of when you've got a newborn baby, you should start to kind of form it to look like the perfect Roman male. And one of these is kind of pulling down the foreskin, making sure you pull down the foreskin of a kind of baby, of a child, of a baby, to make sure that it's of a decent length. So it was clearly something that was very important to them. And yeah, if you think, you know, you, they bathe in public in the baths, it becomes very important that you, you know, you've got the right foreskin. Oh, yeah, because if you turn up without one, it's not like you can subtly hide it, is it? No, no, exactly. 
which is kind of a classic history hack moment to end on, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Leave all of the guys cringing. LJ, this has just been so interesting. Um, it's setting aside the kind of the, the last cringy five minutes um, that didn't make me wince in the slightest. Um, thank you so much for joining us. So Sex and Sexuality in Ancient Rome, it's out already. Folks can get it from the History Hack bookstore. Uh, where can they find out more about you and your work and particularly your novels? Um, I guess if you follow me on Twitter, uh, my hashtag is just at TraffordLJ. And um, if you're interested in penises, I do do a hashtag called Phallus Thursday, which is dedicated <laughs> to depictions of, of penises from antiquity. And it's um it's surprisingly popular. It's surprisingly popular every week. So Not surprising at all. Can I ask one thing, though? You have a son. Is he mortified that you wrote this book? I haven't really told them. Um, okay. So I've got two sons and they're quite young. Okay. Um, cool. Like the, the last book, I, I could read out certain passages to them. I haven't told them about it. I said it's about Roman families and I've okay. kind of hidden, I've hidden my copy. So one day. Brilliantly though, when they start getting girlfriends, you can just start leaving them lying around the house. <laughs> then like, yeah, there, there's nothing you can bring into this house that I didn't already know. Just as a warning, shot across the bow to any potential girls coming in. Yeah, you cannot shock me. You cannot yeah. surprise me. I am unshockable. There's nothing I don't know. <laughs> Just so you know. <laughs> Brilliant. Thank you so much. Yeah. When our guests join us to talk about their work and their new book, the 45 minutes or so they spend with us is just a taster of all their efforts. So to this end, we have launched our very own bookshop on bookshop.org, where you can find our guests' latest and greatest books. You can support them and you can support History Hack too. 10% of every sale via our bookshop supports the podcast and allows us to keep at it and bring you more amazing guests. You can find our bookshop at bookshop.org forward slash shop forward slash history hack or just search on bookshop.org for us under the shops bit. Thank you for your continued support, and here's to your next great book. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. <laughs> 